Let us worship God. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, in him whom we live and move and have our being, we thank thee that thou art always near, closer to us than we are to ourselves, ever working to accomplish thine all-holy, omnipotent, and all-wise purpose. We thank thee that our times are in thy hands, who doest all things well. We rejoice, our Father, that thou art on the throne and that heaven and earth shall fulfill thy purpose. Give us patience. Give us understanding. Give us zeal that we may serve thee as we ought. And in all things to know that thy will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our God, we thank thee. In Christ's name, amen. Our scripture is from Exodus 22, verses 28 through 31. And we conclude our series on laws of liability and restitution. Exodus 22, verses 28 through 31. Thou shalt not revile the gods, nor curse the ruler of thy people. Thou shalt not delay to offer the first of thy ripe fruits and of thy liquors. The firstborn of thy sons shalt thou give unto me. Likewise shalt thou do with thine oxen and with thy sheep. Seven days it shall be with his dam, on the eighth day thou shalt give it me. And ye shall be holy men unto me. Neither shall ye eat any flesh that is torn of beasts in the field. Ye shall cast it to the dogs. These verses have less to do than the rest in this chapter with restitution and liability as far as the human side of things are concerned. They are more God-centered in their orientation, and they require of us a recognition that sin is primarily an offense against God, that when we sin, we do involve other people, but it is God's law that we have broken. To view sin or crime or whatever term you want to use as primarily a man-centered thing is to falsify one's perspective on the matter. If it is man-centered, then man can alter it. Man can forgive it. Man can say, that's all right, forget about it, it's nothing. And man does not have that prerogative. 
We cannot forgive because we don't want to be bothered or maintain anger because we are still angry. We must operate on God's terms. Forgiveness must meet God's requirements. And our wrath must be a righteous wrath. Well, in the first of these verses, the matter is a difficult one. Thou shalt not revile the gods, and the word is Elohim, and it can be used of God or gods or judges, and it clearly means judges, nor curse the ruler of thy people. This deals with our attitude towards those in authority, those in authority over us. And it confronts us with a very realistic fact. Throughout most of history, they have been dishonest. Throughout most of history, they have been tyrannical. This has been the standard fact in history. There's no escaping that. The amazing fact is that people go on trusting and looking to civil government, to the state, for salvation when its history has been so evil. In fact, we don't get much history taught to us today, nor do we get more than a superficial account of contemporary history anywhere, including the daily papers especially. But if we are knowledgeable, and if we are godly, then we recognize the disparity between civil authorities, judges, and officers of state, and God's requirement of them. And the temptation is to take a purely negative attitude, to revile the judges, and to curse the rulers of the people, to damn them. And this is what many people do, including many who are this morning sitting in the pews of churches from coast to coast and in one country after another. When you consider that most of them regard politics a dirty business and fully half of those who claim to be evangelicals are not even registered to vote. You have to add that part of the dirtiest of this dirty business is the irresponsibility of people who should be most responsible. And that we are in the plight because too many are content with simply reviling and cursing, damning the whole process, and, like good Pharisees, withdrawing from it. About 20 years ago, someone called attention to the fact that one-tenth of one percent of the American public, at most, were committed Marxists. But they had more influence by far than the 
50% of voting age or better who declare themselves to be Christians. At the root of that impotence is what this verse is talking about. Reviling and cursing, damning the courts and the public officials is no substitute for godly action, for a godly stand in society. But it is the most common one on all sides. Then we are told, Thou shalt not delay to offer the first of thy ripe fruits and of thy liquors. The firstborn of thy sons shall be given unto me. The significance, of course, of the first fruits is that symbolically in the past they have stood for the totality, the firstborn standing for all, the tithe as the first fruits of our income represents all so that we give the tithe, but all belongs to the Lord and must be used whether it's for ourselves or for any enterprise we're involved in, in terms of godly requirements, godly standards. It is the Alpha, the Alpha representing the All. So we are not to delay to offer the first of thy ripe fruits, liquor of thy son, the first fruits, not the last fruits, in other words. We are not to say, I'll see how much I have in the way of other responsibilities, and then at the end, I'll see what I can give to the Lord. So, this presupposes the necessity of giving and our feeling that we're going to give, yes, we agree, this is our stand. What it is telling us, it has the priority. God does. That we cannot delay, that we cannot say that these other things are pressing and urgent, and therefore God has to wait. Likewise shalt thou do with thine oxen and with thy sheep. Seven days it shall be with his dam, on the eighth day thou shalt give it me. So here we have the requirement with, uh, for the first fruits of sheep and oxen. However, we are told that for seven days they are to stay with the mare or the ewe, as the case might be. We don't know the reason for this. People say it is humanitarian, which is a vague word. However, we do know that uh, until the eighth day, the blood in a child does not coagulate, and there is a parallelism here with circumcision. Circumcision was to come on the eighth day, not before. This was not recognized for its medical import until 
this century when they came to the awareness through research that a baby's blood does not coagulate the first seventh day, first seven days of its life. Well, we don't understand why there is the parallel requirement with regard to lambs and calves, but it is there. Perhaps someday we will understand the reason. But for the present, we don't know. But we're not to obey only when we understand. And this is why the discipline of both father and mother is a necessity in life. Because the natural reaction of a father, and it's a part of the masculine nature, when a child says rebelliously when told to do something, why? Why do I have to do it? Because I said so. Now that's authority. And the father in the household says, my authority governs. Because I said so, you do this. The mother, on the other hand, says, the reason why your father requires this of you is this and that and the other reason. She explains the nature of the authority. Both are necessary. But if we don't have the understanding, we still are required to obey. And ye shall be holy men unto me, neither shall ye eat any flesh that is torn of beasts in the field. Ye shall cast it to the dogs. In other words, if a calf or a lamb is found in the fields torn, dying, you are not to take it and butcher it and eat it. You are to give it to the dogs. This sets a standard for man. How man is to eat. We are created in the image of God. There is no justification for lowering ourselves to eat the leavings, say, of a wolf or a bear or a coyote. And for this reason, we cannot touch such food. This is an important fact. We are to be holy. And holy means dedicated, separated, given over to a particular cause. As a result, because we are given over to God's service, the totality of our lives must be governed by a sense of holiness. That there are some things that men and women must not do that are beneath them, that are degrading to them, however practical it might seem under certain circumstances. We are to be holy unto the Lord. Now, holiness is thus a stress in this passage. 
It is set forth in the fact that we are to have a religious attitude towards those in authority, which means we must have a sense of responsibility. We are not to be given idly to damning them and feeling that's it. But we are to offer our first fruits without delay. That there are things that we are not to eat because we are wholly set apart unto the Lord. Now, this brings us to a word which we will consider today. Very important word because it it, it is descriptive of many sacrifices in the Bible whole burnt offerings which were to be laid upon the altar and totally consumed and not to be eaten by the priest or the sacrificer. They did not belong to either. They belonged totally unto the Lord. They were offerings of atonement. Now, While we are to be holy unto the Lord and dedicated to him, we are not burnt offerings. This is important. We are wholly dedicated to him, but we are not his ordained sacrifices of atonement. This is a very important point because... There has been in this century a great deal of confusion on the subject. It began with World War II when the massacre of Jews was spoken of as a holocaust. And since then, many others have picked up the term, so we speak of the Cambodian holocaust, the Chinese, the Armenian and a great many others, so that the word has suddenly spread out into a number of communities and usages, beginning with a massacre of Jews. But there is a difference between massacre and holocaust. A massacre is the murder of innocents. A holocaust is an offering of atonement. Can we speak of the mass murder of any group of people as a holocaust? It is done routinely. We are told of the holocaust Stalin worked or that Mao Zedong did. This is a misuse of the word. It has done no small damage in that it has led people to give a religious significance to massacres and to speak of them even as an atonement. This usage has certain roots in some very heretical 
groups in the late Middle Ages among the Jews. And with them, people prayed at the time of their death that may my death be an atonement for my sin. And such prayers were made even by criminals who were about to be executed. Kabbalists especially were prone to that kind of thinking. But it has been revived in our time. All this represents a humanistic approach because it gives undue weight to man in the scheme of things, as though man's death could make atonement, as though the death of a group or millions could make atonement. Why have we abandoned the legitimate word, massacre? It's because we have switched theological terms from God to man. So much so that we have forgotten their theological orientation. We speak of the state as sovereign, and it is routinely affirmed since World War I by American courts, and before that was routine for centuries in European courts of kings and then courts of law. But sovereignty means lordship. Same word, same concept. It can only be applied legitimately to God. So, when we switch from a God-centered perspective to a man-centered one, we pervert everything, including language. And we have the kind of incredible insanity today that is so prominent in the press, the pros and cons of how to abolish the plague of drugs. I've been sent lately a number of pro and con articles for legalization as though this would solve the situation. And for the drug war as proposed by Washington. Both are a disaster. Both assume that some device will take care of the matter when it is basically the emptiness in people that drives them to drugs, a religious emptiness. And the one thing that no one in any place of authority will suggest is this is a religious battle. We have a plague of drugs that is sweeping the world because people are empty within. They are running away from self-consciousness, from the fact of what they are and what they need, which is atonement. So they deal with their guilt with drugs. 
and a solution is avoided because they will not have this man to rule over them, Jesus Christ. He shall be holy men unto me. Apart from that, there is foolishness. Unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto Thee for Thy Word and for its plain speaking. We thank Thee that Thou hast given us the privilege and the opportunity of being holy men in Christ, of being dedicated, consecrated, set apart for Thee and for Thy kingdom, for Thy purposes, now and throughout all eternity. Make us joyful and grateful and ever zealous in thy service. In Christ's name, amen. Are there any questions now about our lesson? Yes. Misuse of language is becoming commonplace. I hear words misused on television and radio and see it in the newspapers and read it in books all the time. The standards of language in the United States define very sharply. Mm -hmm. Yes, we actually have uh, several schools that take a dramatically uh, warped view of language. Uh, post-structuralism, deconstruction, and so on, the gist of which is that the original writer of a work of literature did not know what he was saying. And therefore, it has to be decoded by the expert. And this has virtually taken over most uh, schools in the United States, so that all the major universities and a great many minor ones are now uh, deconstructionist or post-structuralist. And I was reading the other day an interpretation of Mark Twain's Huck Finn. I, I simply won't attempt to reproduce it. It was so weird that I had to keep going back to it to ask myself, did they really believe that? Did they hold that? Well, this is a good way of destroying or thinking you have destroyed anyone you disagree with or anyone from a previous era whom you feel was not as enlightened as you are. But it is the destruction of the language. Yes. Well, that leads to more than disagreement. It leads to alienation. Yes. Yes, uh, one of the theses behind the generation gap is that uh, 
the different generations don't speak the same language. And in the world of post-structuralism, deconstruction, and what have you, that's held to be a fact. But then it is also held that men and women don't speak the same language. Well, there's no end to it. It does lead to alienation, isolation, because you're trapped inside yourself without the ability to communicate with anyone. Although I've never had any difficulty understanding Dorothy, nor she me, but apparently, according to theory, uh, we are supposed to be on different wavelengths. Yes. I think one of the contributing factors to the change in, in language has been the disinformation aspect of propaganda, which really was generated hot and heavy during the 50s. Uh, at various times, I've tuned in international shortwave to, for instance, Radio Moscow and some of the other uh, propaganda-generating <laughs> stations, and they continually misuse words in order to confuse their meaning. And I think that this has uh, set a tone, and uh, many academic institutions apparently feel that this has become the correct usage. Yes. We're also being separated from writings of the past. The new translations of the Bible work to destroy your knowledge of the past, which means you then cannot read and understand 16th and 17th century writings too well. And now you have to have a modernized version of even John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress. Well, uh, what is happening is that in universities, upper division and graduate work, students are getting through without ever having read anything that's more than a century old. They're cut off from the past. They don't know the language they are a new kind of illiterate. So it's no wonder they have no understanding because they don't have any historical roots. Well, if there are no further questions, let us conclude with prayer. Our Father, we thank Thee that we live in Thy creation, not in the creation of the fools of our time, who have sought to remake the world in their image. We thank Thee that Thou hast made us in Thine image, called us to a great and glorious purpose and has given us thy word as our marching orders. How great thou art, O Lord, and we thank thee. And now go in peace. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen.